Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Challoner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on the programme today on what, a, what is a crisp, cloudy, but starting to get slightly sunny day in the in the capital here, um, is Melvin Taylor. Now, Melvin is the Managing Director of Turf Dry Limited, a specialist in natural sports turf drainage and construction. Um, Melvin, pleasure to welcome you onto the programme and thanks ever so much for joining us this afternoon. Thanks very much for the invite, Scott. Much appreciated. It's a pleasure for me to welcome you onto the airwaves with us. Um, normally at this point in the programme, we sort of dive straight into the topic of leadership and really bring that into focus. But considering the fact that the COVID-19 situation, which has hung over us this year, has been such a significant challenge for leaders within all walks of life, I think it's appropriate that we can approach this from that angle. Um, so with regards to that, Melvin, to what extent has this whole situation affected you and your business? Uh, well, I'm currently serving my 12th day of quarantine, uh, resulting from a long-planned uh, family holiday to Turkey, uh, which had an air bridge in place when we left the UK. Um, the, that air bridge was closed due to uh, coronavirus cases in Turkey, apparently, mm-hmm. possibly being twice what was reported. Um, so if that was the case, then uh, Turkey, uh, which had 2,000 new cases reported on Wednesday, might actually have had 4,000 cases compared to the uh, 28,000 we had reported in the UK. So um, if there are seven times more coronavirus cases in the UK than in Turkey, I think it's reasonable of me to ask why uh, the three people who manage our company are all quarantined as a result of a seemingly unjustified government decision. Um, but anyway, at the start of the year when uh, coronavirus first hit, um, our business was still in the throes of trying to adjust to the effects of Brexit. Mm. Um, our workforce um, in 2016 was largely Hungarian. And uh, after the Brexit referendum result, uh, the pound fell sharply. and we, we were hit by having to increase wages for our workers to sort of compensate. And we also import uh, our main materials from the United States. So the drop against the dollar had had a significant effect on profitability. Um, some of our Hungarians had stayed on in the UK, um, despite some of them feeling unwelcome after the uh, referendum results. Uh, but after the December 19 election, uh, the remainder decided to leave, uh, and it was clear that we needed to change our business model as far as staffing was concerned, at least. So we had quite enough to deal with at the start of 2020 without a pandemic. Um, the sports turf construction and drainage business is a, a seasonal one. There's very little work done in the winter due to unsuitable weather and ground conditions. Uh, so our site work is compressed into spring, summer and autumn. Uh, winter's taken up by site visits by a management team primarily looking at the potential future projects. Um, so the real first uh, impact of coronavirus in early spring was 
the cancellation of a major golf course drainage contract mm. that was booked for September and October 2020 um, by one of our existing clients. Um, I wasn't surprised to to hear the news of this because courses had been closed. And this particular club, the timing of the enforced closure uh, coincided with the their annual membership subscriptions being due for renewal. So the club's income stream just dried up overnight, unfortunately. Mm. So, um, you know, it was obvious that they had to cancel the drainage works, but that was quite a, a low point uh, for us too. Another um, impact uh, was the voluntary closure of construction sites once the furlough uh, scheme was announced in late March. And as part of our business, we, we design and build sports pitches for major house building firms across the UK um, who may be required to provide such facilities under the terms of planning consent. And we had three such projects uh, ongoing at various stages uh, of construction and maintenance. Um, but such was the initial shutdown of the construction industry that uh, we struggled even to get in touch with our clients. Um, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that there was some panic in the construction sector in the early months mm. of 2020, and it appeared to me that more people were being furloughed than needed to be because we really couldn't contact anyone. Um, but despite the all the negativity that we faced, uh, we made a clear decision to try and continue to operate during the pandemic, and we felt that we had some advantages over other sectors of the construction industry. Most of our site operations are undertaken with tractors or excavation machinery, which meant that it was reasonably easy to introduce two-meter distancing, for example. Um, we worked closely with our external safety consultants and produced a coronavirus protocol for Turf Drive. The main problems for us that we could no longer share transport uh, for our men in vans. And given that we work nationwide, often some distance from our base, uh, that did have cost implications. Um, we generally have our men staying on site in caravans as well, so we needed additional welfare facilities so that people weren't sharing toilets and showers. Mm. Um, but we managed to uh, achieve this with the help of our clients. Um, working on sports pitches means that means that there are often um, changing rooms available to us, and with no sport being played during lockdown, we could actually operate in isolation more easily than usual. So I've been very pleasantly surprised by the fact that we have continued to work throughout the year, and as things currently stand, uh, our annual turnover is actually significantly ahead of where we were at the same time last year. So obviously that's, mm. uh, that's very good from, from our own perspective. Um, so I'd obviously prefer to be similarly surprised in 2021 and thereafter, but I do believe that coronavirus will have a long-lasting adverse impact on the UK economy uh, for quite some years, just as happened following the 2008 economic crash. Mm. Um, so, I mean, the UK has been disproportionately impacted by coronavirus, both in terms of 
of the health of its citizens and our economy. Uh, we're the 21st most populous country in the world, but we rank 11th in terms of the total number of COVID-19 cases and 5th in the total number of deaths. We have far more deaths than any other European country, 20% more than the next highest, which is Italy. Um, Germany's population is 23% greater than the UK, but it's suffered less than a quarter of the number of deaths. So if I have the privilege of a platform to speak by virtue of being a UK business leader, then I, I do feel duty-bound to highlight what I think are very alarming statistics and ask for explanations. Um, perhaps the most worrying statistic that needs highlighting right now is that the UK's number of new cases as of, as of today, the 23rd of October, is the third highest in the world behind only the USA and India, as uh, published by the World Health Organization this morning. So in my eyes, it's quite clear to me that we've got something badly wrong. Um, in terms of economic impact, GDP in the UK in the second quarter of 2020 fell by nearly 22%, the third largest fall of any country in the world, behind only Peru and Spain. Um, our country is undoubtedly borrowing and spending frantically in response to COVID-19. There has been little scrutiny of the government spending, and when a value for money assessment is no doubt made somewhere down the road, it will be too late to do anything about it. Um, I would love to be optimistic about the future, and I'm a very upbeat person, but I'm also a realist. And if we get the double whammy of a no-deal Brexit combined with the pandemic this winter, I, I doubt really imagine how bad it could be. So <laughs> I'm sorry to, uh, to be pessimistic, but uh, that's my honest view, and that's all I can say. It's going to be a very interesting few months, isn't it? Because as you rightly say there, of course, raging on in the background while people have been focusing on the COVID-19 situation have been the Brexit negotiations. And we are still really no closer to knowing whether there will be a deal in place by the end of the year. So businesses anxiously waiting on to see what the outcome of that will be. And it can only prepare for any eventuality in the uh, the meantime. But while, of course, the economic landscape is as challenging as it is, that, of course, is very difficult. Having sort of touched on the, uh, the government's leadership um, there, um, throughout the course of this uh, pandemic. We've seen that there's been a lot of criticism of things that people seem to think that the government has done wrong. Although there has also been praise for some of the initiatives, such as the furlough scheme, such as the uh, the small business loans. What are your views on sort of how it's handled the pandemic so far, this uh, government? Well, I think it's handled it uh, very badly uh, from a health point of view. It, it failed to protect the most vulnerable people by allowing people out of hospital and into care homes with, when they had mm. COVID, for example. I think that was a, an absolutely terrible mistake and that has really caused some of the statistics that I've mentioned earlier, the fact that we, we have the fifth highest death rate in the world. And, you know, that in itself says everything to me about how it has been handled and the fact that we, we now have the third highest current rate of coronavirus just underlines it. Yes, the mm. government has, you can't argue the fact the government has tried to do things to, to compensate, but nobody knows how, um, how severe 
the financial implications are going to be of what we're spending at the moment in trying to limit the impacts of effects that we should have we shouldn't have had to mitigate in the first instance had we dealt with the health implications of coronavirus. It's only the fact that we've we've had so many people affected more than necessary. Like I say, one quarter of the deaths uh, of the UK have, have happened in Germany, which has got you know population of eighty three million. So there's something fundamentally wrong with how we have dealt with it. And yeah, there will be a public inquiry eventually. But unfortunately, like all public inquiries, they happen much too late in the day for any good to really come out of them from a point of view of being useful. Mm. So the the Grenfell inquiry at the moment, same thing. It's certainly going to be something that will be a few months away at the very least, uh, given that Boris Johnson earlier this year did say that now is not the time for a public inquiry and we have to sort of pull together and try and get through this. And um, thinking about um, that, we've um, we've obviously looked at something that maybe has sort of gone wrong in the way the government has managed the uh, the pandemic. Um, maybe it was the fact that we started to come out, out of lockdown a little bit too swiftly, as some people maybe have surmised. Um, but now that we're starting to sort of go backwards, having seen some of recovery over the uh, the summer are we now staring down the barrel not just of a continual health crisis as we enter the winter and cases go up do you think but also a mental health crisis from just the ongoing restrictions people are having to live under and businesses are operating under absolutely we are there's no doubt about that and that's clear clearly happening in in the north of england and has been for for many weeks and you know i can understand why People who've been in you know, the equivalent of a tier two, three situation for for months, you know, in in the north of England, or you know, saying that it's only now that tier two has been imposed in in London that anything is seemingly being done about it. So you know, this week's clashes between you know, Boris Johnson and Andy Burnham, the Manchester mayor, have just typified. That and in the end, they've now backdated and given more uh, to these areas than even Andy Burnham was asking for. So there was a, an unnecessary political spat mm. that you know we could all do without at the moment. We should all be working together, and um, you know, and I'm not making political points because I think that. You know, the fact that we've had no effective opposition for, for years has, has also caused this. So I'm, I'm not in favour of any particular political party. I'm just saying what I think as, a, as an individual. I do think you're very right. I do think we do need to see some unity and some collaboration going forward. Everybody working together for the uh, the common good as we try and continually battle the virus and get the country, communities and businesses through the uh, the pandemic. Um, reflecting on the experience that you've had sort of spearheading your own business through the crisis and trying to chart a course through this, um, is there anything you'd say that working through the last few months has perhaps taught you in your leadership capacity and having to sort of pivot and try and get through all of this? Yes. Um, well, what it's perhaps un- underlined to me is that my business sort of management style has always been to try and, and do things by agreement. I've never been the sort to uh, uh, try and impose things on, on my staff. 
And I'd never do anything that, you know, never ask anyone to do anything that I wouldn't do myself. And that's always been the way I've operated. And that, in in essence, is the reason why uh, I probably started in business, because I didn't like the sort of hierarchical, rigid management structures that I, I experienced when I was, uh, you know, in the years when I left university and was initially working for British Coal, because, um, you know, their structure was such that, you know, you were told what to do, you like it or lump it. And what I've done or tried to do at least is uh, discuss things. Our, our site manager has worked for him for 25 years. And he's a great guy. And, um, you know, we we get on very well, but, you know, not as, not particularly as, we're not that close as friends, but we get on extremely well together. And, um, I value his opinion. He gives me different opinions from uh, from his perspective. When I try and listen, he listens to me. So, um, yeah, it's, we very much move forward on that basis. You know, I'm, I'm lucky to have my, my son, Matthew. He works for the company. He's based down in London. Um, we have you know, discussions every day on things. So we, we have very much a family business, even though we're a limited company. Um my wife's a company secretary, so um, it's it's more than a business. It's it's almost like a lifestyle. Mm. And um, you know, we've say it's twenty. It's our twenty fifth anniversary uh, this year. Mm. Um, we were, <laughs> were looking forward to something more uh, uh, celebratory than we've uh, we've had to endure. But honestly, as I've intimated earlier, you know, we are as an individual individual company are very fortunate to be in the position we're in. It's just that many other businesses that I do really genuinely feel sorry for. And mm. I think it could have been helped uh, in better ways than they are at the moment. They could, yes. It's um it, it's a very difficult time for industries um, across the uh, the country and indeed the uh, the wider world because some certainly have been far more adversely affected than others and they are going to need all of the support that they can get over the uh, the next few months. So it is something which is a real problem and we can look at it with real pessimism. But to try and get through this, we're going to have to see more of the innovation and the adaptability that we've seen over the uh, the last few months. And to the credit of businesses all across the country, fortunately, that is something that we have seen in earnest. and. So many business owners that I've particularly spoken to on the program have described this as being like their first days back in business, having to go back to basics, find new income streams and almost start over from scratch. And that just sort of goes to show that despite how negative the outlook might be, there are lessons that we can take from this. And that has to go as well for just sort of the bigger picture as well. It doesn't just go for business. It also goes for governments and communities as well. We've got to take everything that we can from this, learn from it, and use that to really improve and better ourselves because fundamentally that is what leadership is all about, isn't it? It's a continuous process of development and improvement. Exactly, exactly. And we will undoubtedly come out of this in a totally different situation to what existed when we went into it. Um, the whole economic and social fabric of the country will change significantly. There will be lots more people working from home. Um, I've worked from home for nearly 30 years, so it doesn't, doesn't have a great effect on me. 
Um, perhaps that's why I've been able to you know, take it in more in my stride from that point of view. Because it's not had a, such a significant effect on, on me. I'm used to working from home. Um, it's just part of life. Uh, get, get out of bed in the morning, come straight in the, into the office. And it's, uh, it's great. I don't uh, I have to travel around the country visiting sites, but I, don't, I haven't done any commuting for, for 30 years, which has mm. been great for me. And I don't understand why more people didn't already, you know, do that. So I think that will be one good thing that will come out of it. And mm. it'll help from a, you know, climate change viewpoint. If we all stop driving so much, that'll be one positive effect. And hopefully there'll be many more. Hopefully so. And you're very right about the working from home side of things. The debate around our working practices is very much driven by the benefits to sustainability in the environment and also our work-life balance and mental well-being as well. Um, There are, of course, arguments for having an office space as well and somewhere to commute to just so that one or two days a week you can have that sort of human social interaction that perhaps you've been lacking. And indeed, some businesses perhaps do need that as well because it is difficult to convey certain points over Zoom calls, that sort sort of thing but the workplace of the future which is the central point here it's going to be very different than how we knew it it's probably going to be a mix of working from home being flexible one or two days a week commuting into an office one or two days a week it's going to be very very different and it's going to change things isn't it this whole situation um for like for, for forever isn't it it's not just going to be something that we stick a little plaster over and this is a temporary solution this is the way that we're going to be doing business in this country for good now yes and there are lots of potential benefits in terms of the general, um, you know, if everybody who's commuting two hours a day or more every day uh, can cut that in, in half, that has a massively beneficial impact on you know, family life. And, uh, you know, that can't help but to, to improve matters. And I think the overall, people are taking a step back, I think, and looking at, the overall work-life balance. And there will be good things to come out of this from that uh, examination. I also quite liked as well what you mentioned earlier about during this time, you've not just, of course, been in conversation with your family, but also other people from other businesses as well and discussing how you've been doing things because that sort of collaboration and that communication is something that I think is going to be incredibly important going forward as well. Indeed, fostering that among business leaders is very much what we're all about. And as a for, for those young entrepreneurs out there as well that could be listening to this, I mean, one of the best things that you can do is go out and speak with other business leaders, network with people and learn from others, um, especially during a time such as this where sharing ideas of how to sort of get around things, deal with challenges. It's going to be so, so important for industry to survive and it's all going to be about learning from each other to help make that possible. Very much so. Um, we work with a number of, well, we have another, a number of regular sort of subcontractors who carry out work for us. And, um, you know, we've used the same people for, you know, maybe 10 years or more. So we have very close relationships with them. And it's been very useful to to have discussions with uh, people in charge of those firms and bounce ideas off each other, as you've just suggested. 
Yes, exactly right. Um, it is one of those things that I would certainly like to see among young business leaders reaching out and looking for mentors and trying to learn because it is a difficult time for young people, especially looking on at the sort of economic environment and seeing what COVID-19 is doing to their employment prospects. But despite that, I mean, it is a time to be, still be positive and try and look at the opportunities out there because there will be opportunities to seize upon it's just about finding them and making sure you're in a position to capitalize so it's not all doom and gloom there is something to look forward to no exactly I'm, i totally go go along with that because it's it's very difficult to it's very difficult to plan your future as such but you you know as far as i can see from a sort of business entrepreneurial viewpoint is that you just have to be aware of whatever opportunities might come your way and make the most of them when they do, if, if they hopefully do. You know, you, you do need luck in business, absolutely. And, you know, there are all sorts of different avenues that you could go down and you, you, can, you can only go down one at any one time. So there is luck, uh, but you do just have to make the best of what opportunities are presented to you. And it's all much, can be a matter of timing, just getting the, the right thing at the right time. Sometimes it is literally down to circumstances, isn't it? And thinking about what may well unfold over the course of the next few months, just before we do wrap things up on the programme today, Melvin, um, I know we don't have a crystal ball and there are so many variables in how things could pan out, but in an ideal world, where would you like Turf Dry to be in 12 months and what is it that you're really hoping for the business to have achieved by then in this uncertain climate? Well, I think that irrespective of the whatever general state the economy is in and, and our own particular market sector, um, I'd like to see Turf Dry expanding its market share, which I think is a, a reasonable objective. Um, you know, thanks to the you know, sort of hard work and effort of everyone in, in our business, as I've mentioned, we, we have an impeccable reputation for the quality of our work and, uh, and the effectiveness of our you know, we have a unique proprietary training system, which after 25 years is uh, finally being acknowledged by the major sporting bodies like the FA, UEFA, and the RFU for its uh, really its outstanding technical performance and value for money. So I really want to capitalise on that part of the business, uh, particularly, um, and hope that we can increase our, our market share. So that that will be our, our aim. Whether it's a, the share of a, a larger market or a much smaller market, all we can do is the best in whatever circumstances do present themselves to us. Exactly right. It's all about just trying to seize on the opportunities that will be out there. And it's fantastic that you do have the ambition to go out and try and increase your market share in this uncertain environment. And I think that sort of positivity is infectious, still wanting to target growth, still wanting to target Um, of course stability and I really really hope that it does come good Melvin and over the course of the year the next few months as things start to take shape a little bit more and we have more of an idea of what kind of future we're sort of wading into when we know what the outcome of Brexit will be when it's fully enacted and we know what direction the pandemic is going in I think it would actually be really productive to welcome you back onto the show with us just to see how things are starting to change and how far along you are in trying to make those ambitions really come to life. I really welcome that, Scott. Thanks very much. 
I thoroughly welcome that opportunity as well, Malvin. I've really, really enjoyed welcoming you onto the show today because it has been really enlightening, understanding what's been going on. And most importantly, until we do hopefully get to speak again in future, do take care and stay safe with all that's still happening. And I would extend that to everybody involved at Turf Dry as well. Thanks very much, Scott. Much appreciated. And that also goes for every single one of our listeners tuning into today's podcast. Please do continue to stay well, look after yourselves and be considerate of others because it does make a key difference in saving lives during this time. It was a pleasure for me to welcome Melvin Taylor, Managing Director of Turf Dry Limited, onto the programme today. Next up on the show, we'll be joined by England's 1966 FIFA World Cup hat-trick hero, Sir Jeff Hurst. Now, during his professional career, Sir Jeff scored over 200 professional goals for clubs including West Ham United and Stoke City, among others. But he is most famous, of course, for that treble in England's 4-2 triumph over West Germany back at the old Wembley Stadium 54 long years ago, which saw England lift the Jules Rimet trophy in what is to date our only World Cup title. Um, it made Sir Jeff as well the only man to this day to have scored a hat-trick in a FIFA World Cup final since nobody has since repeated the feat. And he'll be coming onto the programme to not just look back at that historic day in 1966 but also looking back at some of the other highlights of his career the importance of robust leadership throughout as well as leaving a message of thanks for our wonderful nhs that will be coming up next and now ladies and gentlemen without further ado we extend a very warm welcome to a special guest in sir jeff hurst who joins us on the program today um sir jeff good morning good morning how are you very good thank you it certainly is a uh, wonderful uh, day for it isn't it it is. The weather's pretty good at the moment. I hope may, may it last. Absolutely. After a thunderstorm, it's, it's lovely. It is certainly after a storm. And um, speaking of storms, actually, I'd like to start with just a hypothetical scenario. If we imagine if we fast forward two years, Sir Jeff, let's imagine it's December 2022 and it's the World Cup final and England are there. We could be playing defending champions France. We could be playing the Germans, anybody. And England are 2-0 up in the 90th minute. So victory is all but guaranteed. And Harry Kane, with a brace to his name already, is brought down in the penalty area. So he has the opportunity to make history by emulating yourself and becoming only the second ever player to score a World Cup final hat-trick. Would you honestly want him to bury it or would you prefer him to fluff his lines? I'd want him to bury it. Um, I've asked that question, I get that question asked a bit. Um, I've had a good run uh, with this record and goodness me, it's nearly 60 years, I guess, if, if uh, we're looking at 2022. No, I'd want him to bury it. A, a for him, he's a fantastic player, a uh, tremendous goal scorer. And if anybody I'd like to um, repeat what I achieved, uh, it would be someone like Harry, who's a f- fantastic professional with, with Spurs in England. So absolutely. And I want England to do well. I mean, I I'm want England to be successful. I'm an England supporter. I'm a football supporter. And I just I really want the country to do well in, in anything, in, in all sports, and particularly in my sport. So I will not want to bury it, and I'll be absolutely, I will be as delighted as anybody in, in the country um, if, if he can achieve that. But, but more importantly, that England England have achieved what we achieved all those years ago. And it's important that the team uh, do it as opposed to Harry doing it individually. Mm. And that's how I felt about my, uh, my achievements, about the team being successful, whether I got two or three in one sense is... is uh, wouldn't say material, but it's about the team winning. It's all about the team. Mm. 
Exactly. Consideration of the wider team is a cornerstone of leadership, which is, of course, what the Leaders' Council is all about, recognising that and promoting that for the future. But if we sort of flash back 54 years to that moment in 1966 when you were bearing down on goal, I understand that a lot of people always ask you the question about whether you actually knew there were people on the pitch at the time. And there's quite a bit of a joke about that. But there's something else that I'm actually interested in. I understand we all know what happened. The ball nestled in the top corner. England won 4-2 and lifted the World Cup. But you've often described that as being a mishit finish sometimes before, haven't you? Yes, I think people... Um, I've, I, I recall exactly what's amazing. I can recall exactly what I was thinking. Um, at that moment, obviously a crucial moment in, in the game towards the end of the game. I knew the game was nearly finished. I, as the ball came to me initially, I was actually, with my back to goal, I was actually looking at the referee uh, 10 yards from me in the middle of the park and he was waving, at the whistle in his mouth, but waving play on with both arms, indicating quite clearly, of course, that the game was nearly finished. So when I got to the edge of the box, I'm, I now think of the game is nearly finished. I'm thinking that the game's nearly finished. I'm now going to whack this ball with everything I've got left. But I'm thinking if it goes beyond the beyond the sand into the crowd by the time the ball boy gets hit back to uh, Hans Tilkowski, the German keeper, by that time, surely the game has got to be over. But as I always jokingly say, uh, I miss it and, it and it flew in. But I was thinking about wasting time, not so much about, uh, but certainly what I was going to do, which, which sorry, I was going to hit it as hard as I possibly could after those two hours. And it just goes to show sometimes that hit and hope taking a punt can sometimes be the way forward because I think it shows that in any form of leadership, be it in sport or in business, you can't go sometimes without taking risks. Absolutely, yes, absolutely. Yes, I mean, I wasn't in that position with risk in a sense because the game was unfinished, but that that, that philosophy is right. You're just going to, uh, there's an element of, of, of risks uh, of making this, but it's going to be a control on that risk, not, not stupid risks in, in mm. all walks of life an element of maybe doing something that you're not too sure about. But sometimes in life, you've got to have a go. You can't get be successful in terms of long-term leadership if you're just always sitting on the fence and not taking any chances. I don't think that's where the great leaders will get to by having that kind of philosophy. You've got to move forward. And the last time that you actually joined us on the Leaders' Council podcast and spoke with my colleague Jonathan White, uh, Sir Jeff, was back in February, of course. And that was a point where we knew a little bit about COVID-19, which was looming, but that was before it really took hold in the UK and really turned our world upside down. And before that, this summer was meant to be all about the England national team once again, who were going to the European Championships. But that's in a way now been replaced by the National Health Service and we've been supporting the health service and applauding their efforts and we're hanging out thank you banners displaying drawings of rainbows very much in the same vein that you'd see the George Cross adorning most households during a major tournament year. Do you feel there are parallels between the sense of national unity that we've discovered during this time and the spirit of 1966? Oh absolutely particularly the the recognition of the NHS with what they're doing and I think it was a great idea uh, during that period where they asked everybody to stand outside their houses and clap and congratulate the NHS for w- what they were going through. And I think it's, it's been criticism in the past, of course, the NHS on how it's run, whether there's enough, enough funding for it and, and so on. But really, we begin to realise during these turbulent times how absolutely vital and uh, important it is to have a, a health service that works efficiently, and to see individually the, the amount of people who are interviewed almost every day on the t- 
terrible circumstances they were having to work under with with masks and so on. And and also into what was also for me fantastic, all these people from different countries all over the world that were working in our country uh, with the same you you union to to be successful and uh, help people to survive uh, COVID. Uh, very heartwarming. And I think that kind of feeling, I, I probably, as a player in 66, I probably wasn't aware at that time of the unity of the country. I've learned that over the years when I talk to people um, who were about 66 and they will tell you what a great day it was and where they were, remembered exactly what they were doing and the fantastic stories. So that identified then as that great unification of the country, 30 million plus viewers, the biggest viewing, TV viewing audience we've had. So today, um, it's certainly uh, through this pandemic and the NHS has been absolutely magnificent and every single person, uh, some very fantastic and heartwarming stories of how they're dealing with this unbelievably uh, difficult situation from a health perspective. Uh, fantastic. So that was really heartwarming to get out and cheer and clap on the balcony. Um, for the NHS, fantastic. Mm, certainly inspiring what we've been seeing uh, from the uh, the front line as well. And flashing back just to 1966 again, just from a leadership point of view, um, the manager that made all of that possible and oversaw yourself and your teammates on the, the road to the World Cup was, of course, Sir Alf Ramsey. What sets somebody like him or Ron Greenwood apart from other coaches? Because I understand that both men had a profound impact on you, not just as a player, but also as a person as well. Well, I think that I was very fortunate. <laughs> You're talking about coming to the, the, the fortunate in your life to be at, at the time when I was physically at my at my best during those those, those years. Um, born earlier or later, I wouldn't have been around uh, physically enough, uh, clever enough, uh, technically good enough to, to be around to be a, a good player. But at that time, I'm involved with arguably the greatest coach um, we've seen in this country, Harry Redknapp who's been around a long time, would still say he is, he's the best coach he has worked with. And that's, just, that's 50 years having been in the business plus. And then moving on to, to having a national level, a great manager. Uh, and the two coincided in a sense because Ron Greenwood always always said that and felt that he, as a, as a, a coach of a League One club, uh, or Premier League as it is today, it's, it's important you prepare the and teach and coach the players to be to prepare to be playing in the best company, playing for England. And so he prepared us to be playing for England. And then Alf Ramsey knew the players to pick. Um, discipline was his big skill. Making sure those players were disciplined um, in the right formation. Uh, so the two combined move from one to the other. Uh, how, how can you possibly be as, as fortunate um, as, as I was? It was just uh, amazing. So I think Ron was. I think there are two different aspects of football in terms of leadership. You've got a you've got a, a coach who's a team coach who's a teacher effectively. Then you've got the other kind of character who's a, who's a manager who manages people. May not be quite so good technically on the coaching aspects, but by that stage, a wrong reason of passing a coach person to Al, who then managed from a discipline point of view, because you're managing people from the whole country. You're not just managing a club. We're managing people, uh, different characters, and from all over the, the country is, is slightly more demanding job in that respect. So you've got to hone that lot of all over, different characters, strengths, players, into a unit to play for 
to represent England. So Alf Ramsey was, was very good at that. His discipline was, was fantastic. So the com- combination of the two, uh, you can say I can't be as I'm so blessed to be as fortunate as I was to come across these two fantastic uh, uh, people in my life, in my in my football life. And I suppose for every Sir Alf Ramsey and Ron Greenwood um, as well that you have worked with, there are also coaches out there that one might work with that perhaps might not get the best out of players during their, um, of course, their peak. But just, of course, just but just as much as you can learn from, of course, coaches that do get the best out of players, you can learn as much from less effective leaders as you can from good ones as well, because that experience can ultimately mould you as a person, can't it? Oh yes, I think it, yes, I think leadership is important and coaching and teaching is important. Um, and, and the great teachers and coaches and managers ha- have that skill. Sometimes it's an innate skill in, in management. They have it. But I think um, you you can learn, if you're central enough, to learn from people who are uh, teaching you or coaching you. It's not the right way to go about teaching you or coaching or managing you. You can learn uh, from that. If you're a player, you can learn what you think is a good coach or what you think is a good manager, which you can take into your career after playing into uh, coaching or management so you can learn as much from people making mistakes you can learn also from making your own mistakes mm. you can do something in the past that think well, like that was a really stupid thing to do and I'll make sure I'm not going to do that again and it, it is important in all of life you learn from your mistakes people will make mistakes uh, young people will make mistakes but it's learning it's the silly people who make mistakes and don't learn from it, continue making those same mistakes throughout their life and becoming maybe unsuccessful throughout their, their career. Mm, completely understand exactly where you're coming from. I think it's almost impossible to become an effective leader in our profession without having that learning curve of making mistakes and learning from them exactly. Um, during your Absolutely. conversation um, with Jonathan back in February, um, Sir Jeff, I know that you and him discussed at length some of the big inspirations and influences on you throughout your career and throughout adulthood. But I understand that your love for football and obsession with the sport actually started a lot earlier, even if you were toing and fro between football and cricket somewhat at the time. I read somewhere that during your teenage years, you were once fined one pound for disturbing the peace after consistently kicking a football into a neighbour's garden. Is that true? <laughs> Not many people know that, as the saying goes. Yeah, that's absolutely true. We, in, in those uh, medieval days, you, there were, you weren't football pitches or places very rarely where you could play. You, um, in our road in Greenways, it was called in Chelmsford, we, that three or four lads, <coughs> lived quite, quite close to it. It's a cul de sac, it's not a big long road, um, with a round, with a circle at the bottom. So there wasn't a great deal of traffic anyway, A, because it was a, a cul de sac, and B, because there weren't as many cars, no, we didn't as many cars in those days. So uh, we played across, across, the, across the road, um, and you used to have to learn to chip the ball above the pavement to hit the, uh, the goal at the back. The goal was about a, a two-foot-wide semicircular where the tree where a tree was planted. That was the goal, and so as you're able to play football. But amongst those houses where we lived and played, there was a, a family and a, a boy that didn't play football. Um, I think he he was interested in uh, fl- flying, you know, and gl- making balsa wood gliders. And uh, nice guy, but just didn't didn't play football. And on this particular garden, of course, occasionally the ball finished up there. And crazily enough, they um, took us to court. And uh, we actually got fined. This is absolutely true. We got fined a pound for kicking the ball in the neighbour's garden. 
astounding when you think about it, isn't it? Mm. And when you there's nowhere else to play apart from the streets, and uh, we were actually, but that that happens. That happens. You'll you'll hear stories. We see stories of neighbours falling out over different things. You see those those stories every day. But that was certainly a true story. Absolutely, absolutely true. And during that time, um, who was it during childhood that you really looked up to that you thought was an inspiration to you and made you really think that going into professional sport was going to be the route for you? Well, my father was obviously the, the, the biggest inspiration for me because he was an ex-player. He, he played uh, lower down for Oldham Rochdale. We actually moved south from Manchester. We lived, we lived, I was born in Ashton the Lines. We actually moved south to Chelmsford when I was... Pr- probably I was the eldest of three when I was probably about seven or eight into this particular street uh, called Greenways. And he, what he did with me, I think was a, a big influence going back to that third golden world cup in many years in the back garden. And when we moved on to it, we moved up market to a council house somewhere in Chelmsford and he would have me in the back garden teaching me to kick with my left foot. And so I, at that time, and even today, it's, it's, uh, you don't see that many players that are uh, completely two-footed, and I was. Maybe not as two-footed as Bobby Charlton. Even Jack Charlton, his brother, didn't know which was his best foot. He, he was fantastic. But I was pretty pretty um, um, two-footed. And a lot of the hat-tricks I scored were one right, one left, and a header. So um, he, had, he had a huge influence. I wasn't, I wasn't a child, although I had a football, footballing father, I wasn't a child whose father pushed him into being a footballer. He, he um, and what happened with my, my story is a friend of my father, I know the guy's name, called Jock Redfern, unbeknownst to me, he wrote to two clubs uh, for a trial. He wrote to Arsenal and he wrote to West Ham United when I was just after school leaving age. Uh, West Ham uh, replied. They asked me to come for a trial. Um, I went for a trial with them and uh, they saw something in me and took me on the what was called the ground staff then, uh, almost at school living age and uh, so I wasn't necessarily thinking I've got to go into football it's just that that's how it, how it happened uh, although I enjoyed football and I was pretty reasonably good there was no big focus on me uh, as a great schoolboy player nobody was scouting me or uh, you know writing to my parents saying come and have a trial at this club or that club uh, but a friend of my father um, wrote the letter. So that's, that's how it happened. The problem I had during those early years, I enjoyed cricket as well, and I was messing about, as I, I kindly put it, between the two sports, which was hugely detrimental to me in my early, early development, either as a cricketer or either as a footballer. And it wasn't until Ron Greenwood um, miraculously tried me. I was a midfield player then, or centre-half at school. Um, he... Uh, Tell him to try you up front. He put me up front in the game, and then my, my whole football career and life changed dramatically. And I suppose as well, what might have also done it for football as opposed to cricket was that fateful match uh, for Essex over in Egberth against Lancashire, wasn't it? Yes, a lot of people know that. I had one game, uh, one game. The sort of went messing about between the two. I had one first-class game for Essex, as you said, Egberth in um, in Liverpool. And I think I got naught and, and naught not out, I think. So, I mean, we won the game for me. I filmed a couple of catches, but uh, Essex actually won the game. Um, the V Lancashire up, up in their territory. But that was that was a real problem for me. I think I could have done some advice maybe earlier to say, make your mind up. But when you look back, when even today cricket goes through till, what, September? 
whereas football starts in July, so there's a huge overlap. And I'm still playing cricket until September, missing pre-season, early games. For those two or three years, extremely detrimental to me doing well at one or the other. Uh, until Ron Green would just put me up front and that was it. And from a standing start, I think my first season around, I think September, October, I, I played my first game up front against Liverpool. And I think I played about 23, 24 games, no, 27, 28 games and scored 14 goals, like one in two from a standing start for a, mm. a midfield player. So um, quite changed dramatically. Um, that was 60, 62, 63 season, the three years before the World Cup. And when we think about leadership in football, the role of a goalkeeper, of course, not related to your own career, is to essentially build from the back and command this penalty area. And one goalkeeper that you played with, not just for England, but also for Stoke City in the later years in your career, was Gordon Banks. I have to confess, as a boyhood Port Vale supporter, I am relieved that incredible talents like yourself and Gordon are no longer occupying the dressing room there. And I did have the fortune of meeting Gordon when I was a young boy as well. But what was Gordon like as a leader on the field? Well, first of all, he, he was a great, uh, two things for Gordon. He was a, a great keeper. Um, I would still say the greatest English keeper we've ever had uh, and one of the best keepers in the world. Um, absolutely fantastic. Funny enough, I didn't realise, it's funny how you look at, I see when Gordon passed away, naturally, you know, sadly, um, a few months ago, and obviously showing a lot of videos of Banksy, programs about Banksy and the great saves he made and the save against Pelé and so on. But I didn't realise how um, athletic he was, uh, how quick he was, athletic, um, springing forward to smother balls and not just setting balls. Agility-wise, he was absolutely fantastic. But as a character, he was a joker. He was a, a very kind, very mild-mannered, lovely, lovely man, the nicest guy you can possibly wish to meet. But he was a joke. He always had a, a joke for you. Every time you met, sometime he'd have a new joke. And uh, people um, talk about him and who are close to him and remember what a what a, um, a joke he was. And they're the two things that really stick out for Man- for Banksy. And we were very lucky, very lucky, of course, to have that kind of. And you need that kind of quality um, as a world class player when you win a World Cup. You need four or five players, which we were very fortunate to have in our team. Um, uh, Banks is one of the world class players. We're along with Bobby Moore and, and Bobby Charlton. Uh, Jimmy Greaves didn't play with a world class player, in, but in the squad, and Ray Wilson, our left back, I'd always argue was a world class player. So you need that kind of quality initially if you're going to be successful in winning a World Cup. Some world class players, and Banks, he was up there, w- w- not with the best, the best for me. And another thing from during your days at Stoke City as well was that a talented but then troubled young midfielder by the name of Alan Hudson first joined the uh, the club around uh, the early 70s. And I know that you were asked to take him in as a lodger to provide him with a stable home during his spell there by then-manager Tony Waddington. Now, I've spoken to a great many directors and executives on this programme before, and all of them described trust as being a key cornerstone of leadership. How did it feel for you knowing that Waddington trusted you to that degree to ask that of you? Well, I was extremely flattered. It was a, a huge compliment that he saw me as a, and of course over the years, hopefully that, that had uh, come out. That's important that uh, you have those kind of qualities uh, as a player that A, he saw when I was at West Ham and B, obviously acquired me to play at Stoke City. So I was 
I was initially first fairly surprised, I think it <laughs> and certainly my wife was fairly surprised when I when I said I need her permission for for me to um uh, allow Alan Hudson to stay with us in that, those early periods. But what he saw, of course, in me was, uh, which is, I can see in myself, I was, I was a very disciplined person, a very disciplined player, which you have to be. I didn't really have, I would say, the qualities of the world-class players like the Bobby Charles and the Jimmy Green and the Bobby Moores. So uh, you need to have bring all the other characteristics to be successful at, at that level, to compete in their level. And discipline was one of them. And, and um, obviously, Tony Watkins saw that. And if he wanted to put, he trusted me that I was disciplined enough to hopefully push some of my discipline into Alan Hudson, which we did. And um, in those early six months and year, a couple of years, he was come up a bit heavier from Chelsea. He lost a bit of weight. And uh, although he was a little bit indisciplined himself, hence they needed him to, to stay with me, what he was was a fantastic player. He is, uh, was he is one of the, the, the most fantastic players I think I've come across. The, across, but not hit the best because I think he was a certain uh, slightly bit of ill discipline within his, his general life. And you need at the top, and I'm talking at the top being, being an England player. But I compare him purely on ability compared with ability up in the France Beckenbauer mold, mm. without any shadow of a doubt. He, he was that good. So it was a bit of fun and enjoyable times. Uh, getting uh, serving Alan Hudson the cups of tea about eight o'clock at night when we had our tea at our home for those uh, those few months, and I think he, it was a, a big help to uh, getting Alan back on track and performing brilliantly for the club. And following on from your days with the uh, the Potters, you went on, of course, to play football in Ireland and the United States before the end of your career. Did you feel that the dressing room and indeed leadership culture at those clubs differed from perhaps what you'd been used to back in England? Um, well, I think Ireland was just a short spell with Cork Celtic, so it's hard to judge and make any comparisons. And of course, in, in America, it was the early days of, um, of football in America. Uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed my time at Seattle, so it's difficult to make a, uh, a comparison. I think I was fortunate at West Ham that we was a great time at the club and I was fortunate to play with Home City uh, for three years and it was a fantastic time for that particular club they won of course the uh, the the League Cup before I went there mm. sadly they knocked us out in the semi-final so it was a, a marvellous time for, for that particular club and very close we actually I think we played Ajax in, in the, in the following year in, in Europe I think we only lost on, on a goal over two, over the two games against Ajax so it was a great time for the club so I'm very fortunate to have played uh, for, for those two clubs only a short spell at West Brom of course but I think uh, uh, as I always jokingly say I think I was past my uh, sell-by date then um, West Brom was a fantastic club but I was I wasn't at my best and I thought it was time to retire which I did and Johnny Giles was in charge then I think uh, West, West Brom actually got up that year but I've made very little contribution to that success the club had so um, yes it, the American experience was just fantastic. I never saw it long-term being over there. That was a, a, a brilliant few months with my wife and um, uh, two daughters. And my wife, thank you, was uh, pregnant with her third daughter over there. So that was, that was a good time. It's completely different. Ireland was just a, just a... I always joke about Ireland. I was there for about, I think, a month, I think it was. And I enjoyed the experience. And I earned a few quid, and I think it paid for the kitchen in one of my houses back in England. New kitchen. 
So it certainly went really well. I suppose in the waning days of um, your career, um, was it humbling that you realised that people were beginning to actually look up to you and be inspired by you as a legend in perhaps the same way that you were looking to the likes of Bobby Moore earlier on in your career? Yes, I think it's, I think the, that kind of, uh, whatever the word, correct word is, I don't know, being looked at and, and revered sort of comes maybe, uh, maybe longer, maybe in longer, not some sort of immediately after you finish playing, but in the long term when, um, uh, and I always joke with people introduce me either to other people or introduce me on stage as a legend. And, and I always jokingly say, you, you only start being called a legend when you're over 70. And I think the, the whatever the word is, I'm not sure, adulation or recognition or whatever, it sort of happens and you think more about it or it happens and occurs more in later years. Not, not certainly, um, I felt during the, time after I finished playing or managing or playing for England during, during my football career. And I think I, I went into business for 20 years. I don't think anybody necessarily looks at me when I was in business as necessarily a legend or somebody they could look up. So I, I felt that kind of attitude probably has happened in, in my later years, probably. For those younger generations, just lastly, Sir Jeff, before we do wrap things up, um, for people who are aspiring to become leaders in business, politics, sport, or indeed any walk of life, if you could offer any advice to them based upon your experience, what advice would you give them? Simple advice in, in a sentence is really, I learned a lot from Alf Ramsey. He was a, he was a boss. I think a boss sometimes has a natural characteristic. You can learn about management or management courses. But there's certain characteristics when the successful bosses is, is, is within them to start with. But one of the things I learned from Alf Ramsey, which I've taken into my, my business life and even my fa- uh, talking to my family life, if you're involved in business, is when you're managing people, you manage them as a group. Anybody that doesn't want to be part of that group, you find is, is, is backing against what you want to achieve as a boss, you move them out. And I think that's a simple, one of the most simple uh, lessons I've learned during the Alf Ramsey period. Even some of the great players I felt should have been in the squad, possibly at, at the time, without mentioning names. Um, and you hear stories about this player not, you know, completely complying with everything, and they're, they're left out, or they're not even in the squad. And I felt that was, even, and even some with great ability, I, I think probably didn't make it. And I think a lot of it stems down to they didn't want to be, they wanted to be, you know, a lone champion, successful person, didn't want to be part of, of the group. So that, that for me is the, the key message, the single key message I would pass on to anybody who wants to manage a group of people in any walk of life. Mm, ties in very nicely with a quote from one Nelson Mandela, in fact, that surround yourself with people who are better than you are in some ways. And I think that is incredibly sound advice indeed. Yes, it is. Very good. Good advice. Yes. So, Jeff. Thank you ever so much for joining us on the uh, the programme this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure having you with us to discuss your life, career and leadership. And it would be a pleasure to welcome you back on the programme in future to discuss further. Pleasure. Thank you. Enjoy, enjoy being part of the programme. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you ever so much for your time again. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.